0: Welcome to episode 30. This is a feel-good episode. This is about Andrew Gibbs Dabney, who was a former opioid addict who robbed a liquor store and served serious prison time, who turned his life around, created an amazing company called Lives In, which is a sustainable clothing company. Andrew's story of perseverance and bravery will really shock you and inspire you. The Going for Greatness podcast is about amazing human beings doing amazing things, but against all odds. And that's where you come in. Andrew, you've had a hell of a journey, founder of a successful, sustainable clothing company. But going back, your story is unbelievably shocking. It's a story of a man who's very resilient, very driven, and maybe a little lucky too. I'd like to have you just share your history of being an opioid addict that translated to your life in jail, and you were looking at heavy time, and how you turned your life around.
1: Yeah, The story starts, I think, a lot earlier than when I started using drugs recreationally. I was actually born with severe pigeon-toed feet, so not exactly uh, inverted, but actually facing backwards for the most part. Two weeks old, I had to have my first major surgery on both feet. And I had eight of those until I was 12 years old. Each surgery came with you know, hospital time and opiates. So I was on morphine through those surgeries and obviously after it. And as a kid, I didn't think about these things that much. My, when I look back at my childhood, I was I was camping. I was riding my bike. I was hanging out at the park. I was that kid that my parents would go and just yell off the front porch saying, dinner time. And I'd come home and eat and I'd run right back outside. I remember time in, in the hospital and some of those recovery times, but that's not what stood out. But what I think is interesting is there's a lot of you know, emerging science that basically shows early exposure to certain drugs helps your brain basically use those better. You have chemical pathways. It's similar to how if you're a master craftsman and you need to do one thing all day long, you get really good at doing that one thing. Your brain's also very good at utilizing the substances that it's been exposed to the most. And so when I came to college, freshman year, I was not focused on being studious. I was focused on having a good time and I was very experimental. And during that time, I came back to opiates. To me, it was the first time I I didn't really realize that it was not the first time my body had really been exposed to this. And it felt right, felt comfortable. I felt more energetic, more confident, more at ease physically than I had in a long time. When you feel something like that, you want to do more, that's the willpower side of it. I wanted to continue to feel this. Eventually, and opiates are, are one of the hardest hitting versions of this kind of drug is it creates a physical dependency very fast. Knowing that I also have an addictive nature that each time I need to perform, right? And so when you when you find this drug that gives you an edge or, or makes you feel so good, I think, I was pretty easy to fall into that trap. And then full-on physical addiction comes into play, where you know opiates in particular and alcohol is like this too, where if you don't have it, you don't function. So I went from a normal recreational user to a heavy habitual user pretty quickly to the point where if I didn't have opiates, I didn't eat, sleep, I didn't work, I didn't study, I didn't do anything. So it became a necessity versus a recreational thing pretty
0: quickly. You were a freshman in college at this point. You were 18. Mm-hmm. How many oxycodone pills were you taking a day at that point?
1: Oh, at first it was a little bit. Fast forward, maybe a year or two, I had a two to five hundred dollar a day habit just to kind of maintain, and that wasn't really even going overboard or anything. And you can see how the economics of that don't work out,
0: which probably leads you to robbing a liquor store.
1: Yeah, it didn't lead straight there. You know, I have a lot of privilege and, like you said, luck in my story. I uh, lived in a house where I didn't have to pay rent. I had a credit card that could buy myself food. Now you can't buy drugs with a credit card, and you can't buy drugs with your rent, right? Like, and that habit is too high. But I never. Never did go homeless. I never resorted to constant petty theft. It was more of everything I own was in a pawn shop at any given time. I was obviously selling certain drugs. There's almost no drug user in this class that doesn't end up being a drug seller at some point. Not like you're a kingpin or you know organized. It's just it's survival. Ended up heavily in debt in that. Mindspace. I call it mindspace. It's really not. You're really just in a survival mode at that point.
0: Did your family understand what was going on?
1: So I wasn't living with my family. I was living with some roommates that I was, you know, friends with from college. I was severely underweight. I was definitely like, you know, had a bad attitude. I wasn't, you know, engaging with family in the way that you probably should. So I think my family had a lot of suspicions that something was wrong. I don't think they knew exactly what it was or how bad it had gotten.
0: You were heavily in debt. And what happened after that point? It's interesting looking back at like this memory. like I said, it's more
1: survival than really conscious thought that I remember back into. I just, I knew that I needed money. I knew that I needed drugs. And that led me to robbing a liquor store in Fayetteville in my hometown. Now, it was nonviolent. No one was hit. No one was threatened. Amateur. It was everything that showed that I was not a true hardened criminal. And I think that has a lot to do with coupling that with letters of character, community service, getting sober and have a good place to land afterwards is why I ended up being able to have that charge dropped from a aggravated robbery and 40 to life as an original sentence to a theft of property with a 20-year prison sentence of which 10 was suspended. So really a 10-year sentence.
0: That's pretty rock bottom, right? I mean, you're a young guy and you're looking at 10 years in jail. The the rock bottom I'd say happened before that
1: during rehab when I was you know getting sober say two weeks after a a fully non medicated detox my brain started to seemingly work again right I started to be able to be self reflective started to think about the consequences of my actions and at that time I was looking at 40 to life in my head 40 year sentence was the bottom possibility you know the best case and in Arkansas prison system for in a lot of state prisons that would have been eight to ten years behind bars assuming I was on good behavior before I was out again. That's a big chunk of time. I was looking at starting my life over at around where I am now. I'm 34. I would have gotten out somewhere around 32 or 33. And I was in this headspace of how am I going to make the most of my time while I'm inside? How am I going to not waste those 10 years? Because life is short. You don't get another second shot. So if I'm going to be behind bars, how do I maximize that? So that's the headspace I was in when I, was, when I made that choice As it doesn't get worse than this. I was lucky to be alive at that point. I'm even luckier that I went through that experience then and not now. It's always been a roll of the dice to use opiates. Now you don't even know what the opiate you're using is, which is terrifying.
0: What's the danger with opioids today versus 11 years ago?
1: 11 years ago, if you had a prescription of Oxycontin, a pill that looked like a prescription, you were certain that it was a prescription, that it came from Purdue, that it came from a pharmaceutical company and that you were doing something that was measurable and dosable. I didn't really do heroin or anything like that unless I absolutely had to. I was really focused on that. And it was somewhat of a of cautiousness as much as you can be just not wanting to overdose. Now you can get a pill that looks just like an Oxycontin, but it's actually fake. It's been pressed and it's really fentanyl. And fentanyl is so hard to dose and so deadly that you could do what you thought was a very small amount, be dead the next minute. And there's no careful about it. You just don't know what you're taking. And that's terrifying.
0: Are you actively helping people who are struggling with drug addiction?
1: I wouldn't say active. I'd say the closest I've come in the last several years to doing that has been sharing my story like I have been over the last six months. There is part of me that doesn't want to really expose myself to that world again, that life um, and those kind of people in that stage. I have a lot of confidence in myself now and where I am. Um, so I'm, I am, you know, currently working through how is the best play to to help people in that scenario. And for me, it it may take the form of the formerly incarcerated more than the addicted. Working with addiction, you can't help somebody in them until they're ready to help themselves, until they've made those strides and make that choice for them. Like I do want to help, and and I don't know exactly how to do that yet. Right now, talking about the things that I've been through and that you can actually you can come out on the other side and you can do things productive on the other side of that. And you can have an impact on the world and you're not forever branded addict or criminal to a a part of you that is in the past. Right now, I'm comfortable with sharing that story and seeing if that helps people.
0: Your resiliency is what is so fascinating to me because not only did you come out on the other side, but you're in a sort of elite class of founders now. You started a sustainable clothing company. You were ranked, what was it, like the, the best outdoor pants ever made or something like that?
1: Outside put us in their buyer's guide saying we're the best climbing pants in 2020. And then quickly after that, Gear Junkie said we were the best pants of 2020. And then from there on, we've we've continued to be blessed with lots of really great supporters in the press and retailers and customers that have continued to say that we make the best pants in the world. That's not something that I'm actually comfortable saying. I think it's hyperbolic. But if someone wants to say that to me and say that about our company, then I'm absolutely going (laughs) to accept it and say thank you.
0: How did you go from facing a long long period of time behind bars and an addict to a successful founder of a sustainable outdoor clothing line.
1: Whenever I pled guilty to a theft of property charge, what that opened up was the possibility, not the guarantee, of being able to enter into a military boot camp program within the Arkansas Department of Corrections. I had to apply once I got there, and it was not a guarantee, but my sentence was eligible. So when I got to prison, the first thing I did was it's hard to do this, but I requested the forms. Took a few days to even get the forms. A few days later, I was actually admitted into boot camp. I was in jail for a little over three months, I was in regular prison for about two weeks. I was in boot camp still at a prison, like inside of a prison, but for 105 days. And so I was able to get back out. It was about a year of my life from the crime until I was back out in the world under a very strict parole, because part of that terms of that early release were you were having more than normal regular parole checkups, more drug tests, all these things, travel restriction. So to answer your question, once again, this gets back to some privilege. And I want to make sure I acknowledge that is I had a warm bed to land in at, at my dad's house at the time, food on the table. I had a safe, secure place to come out of prison and rebuild of my life. And a lot of people don't have that. And so I just, I do want to acknowledge it. It's not everything. You need to make a choice. You have to do things for yourself and you have to take responsibility, but it's definitely a factor. I wanted to earn my undergrad. I had dropped out of school with about 90 credits. You need 120, but they weren't the right 90 credits. So I knew that I was not too far from finishing my college degree. I went back to the community college, made straight A's for two semesters and got readmitted back into Arkansas to finish my undergrad. While I was there finishing my undergrad, some friends had had a successful apparel company that they had started up outdoor focused, that was growing really, really fast. And I was working for the university in the warehouse and they said, Hey, we need someone to come to our warehouse and help us ship things. And um, would you will be interested in doing it? And they knew my background. They knew me through that time. They knew I wasn't a bad person. Um, and they gave me a shot. And so I worked there for five years, um, started in warehouse picking and packing orders and ended up as the CEO of the company, you know, running it for those three founders. Um, and then helping that company kind of move to a new transition before I transitioned transitioned out. I didn't just leave school to work full-time, I transitioned to a university that had a night school management program that you could complete your undergrad through. So I ended up graduating from John Brown University with an organizational management degree and then working through this company and um, really getting my life back on track. I, I got married during that time, bought a house and you know we're laying the groundwork to start a family. Which we have fast forward a little
0: bit. It's just an amazing story. The recidivism rate is gotta be unbelievably high. But here you are. You sort of took the values that you created for your life post prison and kind of baked them into this new company that you started. Has it been difficult raising money with your story? I mean, have you have you lost any opportunities for big investors because you had a, a criminal background?
1: Yes, I have. You touched on something really important there, and that's there's two things I realized. There was I guess Epiphany is not really the right word because it came on slower than that. But as I was going through that process through the legal system, I realized really two things. That one, nature and outdoors was really what drove my passion. I was keeping myself from that with an addiction to this drug and I was filling a void that it could fill. So I realized that in time outside and time in nature and outdoor recreation was what I needed to do to stay healthy, both mentally and physically and stay off of opiates. I also realized that when everything's taken away from you, when you're stripped of everything that makes the, all your belongings and you're put into prison, that all you're left with is memories and relationships and experiences that you had and your hopes and dreams, right? It's all up here. None of the other stuff really matters because it's all gone. And that's a powerful thought. And so when I was starting Lives In, it was really based on these ideas, right? We want to break down this barrier between daily life and getting outside. We want to help people experience nature and what outdoors can do for them. And then we want to make these products that are additive to life, that create experiences. And the way you do that is not by making products that are cheap. You make products that are that work well, that fit well, that people can own without a lot of maintenance that last a long time, fit into their daily lives, and they don't really have to think about it. They just work. To make something that kind of bleeds into the background and just works is actually a lot harder than to just make something look good or be fashionable. right? There's a lot of nuance to that. And so Livesin was this idea of, of making these very sustainable, very high quality products that help people have experiences. That is the DNA. Those are in the values of the company. That's what we do and why. And the second part of your question is, I think for years, it got in the way of investment. I just didn't know it. I think I was getting no's for lots of reasons. There's lots of Reasons to say no for investment, right? From the investor side, there's a million things. It's industry, it's the founding team, it's the margins, it's the it's the consumer goods, it's hard, it's peril, they're all valid. I had heard rumors in the background that some of the reasons that were really no were because of my background or because I hadn't disclosed it. I always do and I always did, but it was never like in the very first conversation. I still believe there's some like kind of open hiring laws around the country around the country where it's not required on an application, very much in support of that. And I kind of treated it like that. I want to earn the relationship or the business on my own merit. And then before things get serious, I would say something. Now, what happens is if you don't get to the chance to say something or that opportunity didn't present itself very well, then it felt to me like I was holding something back. And I think it felt like I was not being sincere to some of these people I was trying to raise money from because they had to do a background check inevitably and find something. And so that had happened, I think... In the background but i did have one opportunity that was supposed to be with a famous tv personality big startup star investor o- entrepreneur a taped recording all these things that came along with an investment uh potential and up on the day of the recording it was canceled and i said oh is it scheduling you know and they said no they didn't give me any more information so i said okay like what's going on like i can reschedule is something i said and they said no it's it's your criminal history it's your background and that basically that we can't get comfortable with it and That's when I realized I need to get this out. As much as I know that it's in my past, I need to make sure that this is going to close a door for me in the future. That that door closes right at the beginning. I don't get too excited. I don't. I don't go down that path. You know, my hope was that it would actually end up opening some doors, but that wasn't really why I did it. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to get let down again.
0: It must be very scary to tell this kind of story, which typically has a pretty grim ending.
1: It was. It was scary. I had written that post for weeks before I pushed go. I had had the article and the and the post and everything just like ready, and I was rereading it and rewriting it and just finding every reason to not. To not do it. Yeah, it was terrifying. I mean, it was, I, you know, I'm in a town of 50,000 people in Bentonville, Arkansas, relationships with people that, that not everybody knew this, many did. I did not want Lives in success to be because of my story at the beginning. I wanted Lives in to be out in the world on its own merits with great products and good branding and, and saying something that people really respond to and care about and not have it be because of my story. That time, two things had happened I'd gotten the nose and maybe want to get it out there. And two, I felt like lives and has its own legs, its own momentum that this story can only be additive to it, but it won't be the reason why most of our customers have already come to us in the first place. I, I wanted, that was important to me.
0: You pushed go the story post. What would some of the feedback you've gotten from people? It was wild. I
1: pushed go. And you know, as you do sometimes, like sometimes you watch your social posts like crazy for a while. I think I actually got somewhat distracted after I pushed like post and I came back to it about an hour later and it had already just taken wings. You know, you post on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm kind of used to the regular amount of kind of likes and comments, and things that you get, your engagement. Um, this one was just already way far and beyond anything I posted before. And it was all positive. There was not one negative comment. At first, it was people from my life that were like, oh, I had no idea or I support you or this is amazing. Thank you for saying it. And then pretty soon after, it was people that I had never met that weren't even second or third degree connections. They were just, they. Had, I don't know how they found it. It just popped up to them. And they said, I'm inspired by this. Thank you for sharing. And then the words of encouragement to me were amazing. What has continued to surprise me is the relations that people have made to my story, how it has touched their lives, how an experience that they're not proud of, they're not putting out front, they still feel like they're hiding it. Or a loved one who is struggling with opiate addiction right now, or a loved one who's locked up. They want to share my story so that they give them some hope. That has completely stopped me in my tracks at that point and realized that there's there's some value to this. Other than me just getting it off my chest, other than not wanting to feel like I was hiding something, that there's more value to what I went through for other people than I ever thought there was. And that's still happening. And it, I don't know what to do with it yet.
0: Your Lives In brand is pretty amazing. I've been reading about your products. And if we were sitting here in 10 years, what does Lives In look like to you?
1: We want to be a household brand in the outdoor industry. So we want to be known there with the big guys, we want to be, you know, Patagonia, North Face, uh Columbia lives in. We want to be known for extreme dedication to sustainability, very high quality products. And a brand that means something to people. I'm comfortable with it now, as if if this story of telling this helps people, if it helps my company, and those two things are satisfied, then I'm happy with it. I don't know that I want to be known always as the guy who robbed a liquor store and and had a former addiction to drugs.
0: I hope you're super proud of yourself. I'm listening to you. You are the essence of this podcast, going for greatness, because you're an amazing human being doing something pretty tough, which is starting a company. You're beating the odds. It's very inspiring, and you're very very impressive. You're also very, very, very brave, Andrew. And I really thank you for sharing your story with us today. I think it's going to help a lot of people going forward. Well, thank
1: you so much for the opportunity and the ability to tell it some more.